Well, good morning, Veritas. I'm excited to be here and worship with all of you uh, this morning. For those of you who I haven't met yet, my name is David Geyer, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. And for those of you, uh, if you're new here, uh, let me just say welcome. Uh, we're happy that you're here. We're thrilled you're here. We want you to feel at home here. Please consider stopping by our Connect table after the service. I would love the opportunity to meet you and get to know you a little bit. And for everybody in the room, and for those of you who maybe came in after the first song started, as Evan already mentioned, I want to bring attention to something that's new in the life of Veritas here, and this is our first ever fifth Sunday celebration. And what that means is going forward every month of the year where we have five Sundays, we will be suspending Veritas Kids programs for the day. Uh, and we're really excited about what God's going to do through that in our church. This gives us the opportunity to celebrate all of our kids volunteers who work so hard. It gives them the opportunity to all worship together uh, on a Sunday. And it also gives all of our family units the opportunity uh, to do the same thing. And so uh, let me just say, we're really excited about what God is going to do through that. So if it seems like uh, there's a little less room in here, or there's maybe a few more babies, a few more toddlers, uh, mine included, uh, that's why. Uh, and we are, we're really excited about it. Well, this morning, we're going to be wrapping up our series in Haggai. We covered chapter one last week, and we will be in chapter two today. So you can go and turn with me there. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off the back table. We have hardback Bibles there. And if you do take one of those, please keep that. That is our gift to you. Now, before we get started in the passage today, I'm going to recap a section from the greatest fiction series of all time. I think we can all say it together, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and if you said something different, if you had a different story in mind, that's okay. Uh, as a good friend of mine is very fond of saying quite often, you can have sincere beliefs uh, but you can also be sincerely wrong. Um, but that is, uh, that's okay. I trust the vast majority of you are at least familiar with the story. Um, but for the purposes of the illustration, I'm going to go ahead and just recap uh, the story for you. Uh, so the Lord of the Rings takes place in a fictional land called Middle-earth. Um, and the, the central problem that the story surrounds is what is known as the Ring of Power, the presence of the Ring of Power. And the Ring is really a great allegory for sin and evil in the world. And this is demonstrated throughout the story by what happens to those who hold it, uh, who, who are near it, or even worse, those who wear it. Um, and the main character in the story is a guy by the name of Frodo. And Frodo's main task throughout uh, the series is to destroy the ring. And that sounds really simple, um, but that it involves a really long journey with a lot of hardship. He has to travel across the entire known world to do it. And so the, the story starts off with Frodo taking off with eight companions to destroy the ring. And like I mentioned, there's a lot of hardship along the way. And eventually he comes to, to a place in the story where he only has two companions left. He has a, a friend by the name of Sam. Uh, and Sam is really everything you could ever want in a friend. Uh, he loves Frodo. He is loyal to Frodo, even when that loyalty is not returned. Uh, and he protects Frodo. And uh, the other companion at this stage in the story is a creature by the name of Gollum. And obviously, with a name like Gollum, uh, he, is a, he is a backstabbing lowlife, and he is up to no good throughout the entire story. Uh, but the story brings us to a place where the three of them can no longer continue together. Disagreements have arisen, uh, and Frodo has to choose between Sam and Gollum. And ultimately, due to the influence of the ring, which he has been holding for quite some time now, and he's been carrying it throughout his whole journey, Frodo chooses Gollum, and he sends Sam away. And whether you're watching the movies or reading the books, it is painfully obvious at this point that Gollum is just waiting for the first opportunity to betray Frodo and take the ring for himself. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Frodo sends Sam away. And then uh, whether you know the story or not, I think we all know what happens next. 
And, okay, good, I'm still on. Uh, I think we all know what happens next. Uh, Gollum immediately leads Frodo into a trap to leave him for dead and take the ring for himself. Uh, luckily, Sam returns, and after battling incredible odds, he rescues Frodo from certain death, uh, and then upon seeing his dear friend return, Frodo asks Sam you know, why he returned, to which he simply replies, I made a promise that I wouldn't leave you, uh, and I don't mean to. And the story obviously doesn't end there. Uh, there's still a lot that needs to happen, but ultimately the point that I'm making is that it is through the courage and the hope that Sam provides to Frodo that he is actually able to eventually accomplish his task and destroy the ring. And now in case you're getting worried that I'm about to preach for 30 minutes from the Lord of the Rings, fear not, we are going to turn to the actual Bible. But I recap that story because I think it captures really well what we're going to see God doing for his people in Haggai chapter 2. Throughout Israel's history, they have had opportunity after opportunity to choose between a faithful God who has chosen them, who loves them, and the empty promises of the world. And over and over again, Israel has chosen those empty promises of worldliness and idolatry. And so even as we saw last week, when Israel begins to heed God's instructions and follow his commands again, they are still desperately in need of encouragement and assurance. So as we read this passage together today, we're going to be reminded anew uh, that God doesn't just give his people an impossibly hard task and leave them uh, to figure it out for themselves. He supplies them with the hope uh, that they so desperately need to embrace their task. Let's turn now to the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? 
Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let me pray uh, for God's help. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for choosing to dwell among your people and for giving them graciously work to do in accomplishing your purposes. God, I pray that as we consider this text, that the hope you have provided us would shine through. I pray that you would stir up courage in our hearts to embrace the work that you have given us to do. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use these words to transform our hearts today. Help us to resist the urge to see this text as something written for people thousands of years ago. God, your word is alive and it is powerful. I pray that anything that I say that points to your truth and your revelation, God, I pray that people's ears would be open and their hearts would be open to hear. And God, I pray that if and, and when I say anything that is confusing or even worse, uh, incorrect, uh, I pray that that would fall on deaf ears and that it would not lead any of your children astray. God, we love you and thank you for this opportunity to learn from your word. And we pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. Uh, so as we begin to break down this passage, I want to bring attention uh, to a couple of things. First, as a reminder from last week, uh, God has rebuked his people for their misplaced priorities, and they were more focused on rebuilding their own houses, focusing on their own little kingdoms, than on rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And at the end of the chapter, uh, we saw that the people heeded the warning of Haggai, and they began to once again work on the temple. And this is a good thing, and God is pleased uh, with his people for doing this. And second, Haggai delivers three separate oracles in this chapter, the first coming about four weeks after the events of chapter one, and the second and third coming about two months after that. And we know from the book of Ezra uh, that the temple rebuild was not completed until the sixth year of Darius's reign. So at this point, there is still a long, hard road ahead. They still have four years of long, hard, arduous work. And aside from how hard this task was going to be physically and logistically, there was also the very real of whether or not they would be able to maintain the heart motivation necessary to rebuild a structure that they have no history of respecting. So with that in mind, that's where we're going to see, we're really going to see God, he seems to be going out of his way in this passage to build his people up and to give them hope. And I want to point out three specific ways that he's doing that in this passage. He gives us hope when we are weak, he gives us hope when we are afraid, and he gives us hope ultimately when we fail. So God gives us hope when we're weak. Uh, let's take a look again at verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? I hear Haggai is bringing attention to the ongoing work on the temple and the obvious fact that this temple does not measure up to the previous, the former temple that Solomon had built. There were elders among the people who would have remembered, who would have been young enough, who would be old enough to remember what that temple looked like 66 years previously, and young people among them would surely have been told of the glory of that temple. And detailed in 1 Kings chapter 6, we see that Solomon built that temple to be one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful building in the world, and people traveled from all over to include some world rulers uh, to see that temple. Um, but the situation that people find themselves in now is very different. Uh, they have no political power. They're only in their homeland because of permission from their conquerors. Uh, they also don't have the same level of material wealth. In other words, their weakness is painfully apparent, but instead of leaving them uh, to despair in this weakness, God gives them hope here. Uh, let's take a look at verses 4 through 5. 
Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So the people are obviously aware and discouraged by their weakness. Um, and God has given them hope here by, by reminding of the way he has provided for them graciously throughout their history. He specifically brings up the Exodus story where he miraculously delivered them out of slavery to Egypt. He opened up the Red Sea and allowed his people to walk through on dry land and swallowed up the Egyptians in the heart of the sea. So he's reminding of that past provision, but he also assures them that he is still with them. At the end of verse 5, he says, my spirit remains in your midst. And this is significant because this is despite their idolatry, despite their wickedness, despite the fact they're only actually working on the temple right now because he stirred it up in their hearts to do so. God is encouraging them to take on this hard work before them, not because of their abilities or their strength, um, not because of their status, uh, but because he is with them still. And despite their unfaithfulness, God is going to remain faithful to his people. Uh, let's take a moment just briefly to consider where we are today in light of this passage. As we were reminded last week, we may not have a physical temple to rebuild, but we have been charged with building up the body of Christ. And with this responsibility comes a lot of hard work. Uh, and just as the people of Israel clearly needed hope and encouragement in their circumstantial and their spiritual weakness, so do we. Uh, for example, how often do we look at ourselves and lament our weakness? Uh, we think that in order for God to use us, we need to get to a better place spiritually. We think we need to clean ourselves up, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want so badly for God to use us because of our strength and because of our courage. But that simply just isn't God's plan. We need to remind ourselves that God's kingdom is upside down. His view of strength is not the same as the view of this broken world that we inhabit. He has chosen to use the weak to shame the strength of the world. He has come not for the healthy but for the sick. Um, and how does this practically apply to us? I think we each need to be honest about areas where we want to appear strong. We need to repent of ways that we desire to be justified by things that we have done. And we need to remind each other consistently and daily that our weakness is not something to despair in. It is something to lean into with the hope of God's strength. And this brings me uh, to the next way we see God giving us hope in this passage. He gives us hope when we are afraid. Uh, look again at verses 4 through 5. Uh, that last sentence there, fear not, it very well may be the shortest sentence in all of Scripture, but I think Haggai clearly tacked it on to the end of this exhortation for a reason. Uh, we know from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that the original contingent of people who returned to the land out of exile experienced significant hardship and opposition. Uh, this opposition was significant enough that they delayed working on the temple for over 16 years after laying the foundation. And that's where we picked the story up in Haggai chapter 1 with God calling out their misplaced priorities. And put another way, the fear of enemies and the fear of political persecution and retaliation had gotten in the way of God's people doing his work, the rebuilding of his house. And here again, I think it's relatively easy uh, to see how this applies to our lives. Living today in 21st century America, we may not have the fear of physical danger or political persecution in any real way, uh, but fear absolutely still holds many of us back uh, from working to build up the body of Christ. Uh, let me just give you a couple of ways that I think this can play out in our lives. Um, maybe you're afraid of the consequences that can come from repenting from a hidden sin. Uh, maybe you've gotten so wrapped up in an addiction 
uh, that you just see no way out without destroying the reputation that you have built for yourself. Uh, maybe you are just so afraid of what people are going to think when they see how broken you really are or what you've really done. Or maybe you struggle with a different kind of fear. Maybe you struggle with what you think you could lose if you actually commit uh, to a body of believers. You fear what others... I'm sorry. Uh, you're afraid of losing your free time uh, if you commit to studying God's Word. You could be afraid of losing some of your money if you commit to being a member of a local church. Or maybe you're just generally speaking afraid of being held accountable for this new commitment that you've made to follow Jesus. These are all real fears, and any one of them, if we aren't careful, will completely derail our ministry in the church. And let me just take a moment to say, I am not up here preaching because of my ability to avoid these fears. I have struggled in every single one of these areas. Uh, I struggled with the hidden sin of pornography for years, uh, and it not only derailed my ministry in the church, it nearly destroyed my life. Uh, I, I consistently view my time, my money, my resources as things for me to use to build my own little kingdom instead of working on God's. And this is exactly why we need to cling to the hope which God is offering us here. So as we've seen, again, he reminds us of his past provision, his current presence, but he also assures us of his future plan. As we see in verses 6 through 9, briefly, uh, God is going ultimately, ultimately God is going to do the work necessary to rebuild his temple. And that future temple is not only going to be more glorious than this temple that they're working on in Haggai's day, it's going to be more glorious than the temple of Solomon. And as Ryan mentioned last week, uh, this future glory is referring to the person and work of Jesus. So as we are tempted to hold back in fear from engaging in Christ's body, we can encourage one another with the hope of God's future plan. Which brings us now to the final way that we see God giving us hope. He gives us hope when we fail. Uh, and this is something that Israel especially needed to hear from the Lord because uh, they were no strangers to failure. The scripture is literally filled with just example after example of God's people turning away from him and turning away from his commandments. And so these remnant people hearing Haggai's words would have ample and good reason to question whether or not they actually have the ability to follow through with this work. Uh, let's turn our attention to verses 11 through 19. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to reread this whole section, uh, but the words are going to appear on the screen. So Haggai starts off uh, this section with a parable of sorts uh, by asking a couple of questions for the priests uh, who would have been experts in the laws and rules of the temple. He first asks if holy meat can transfer holiness to another object. And the answer is no. Holiness cannot be transferred uh, to the third degree. But on the contrary, someone who is unclean can absolutely transfer that uncleanness, that defilement to another object. And the point really here is we are unable to make ourselves holy, but we are more than capable of making ourselves unclean through our sin. And then Haggai really delivers the punchline of this parable in verse 14. So is it with this people and with this nation before me. Because, because of their unwillingness uh, to rebuild God's house, because of their sin, uh, they were unclean, they were defiled. In other words, they have failed. And not only that, but every work of their hands is defiled. In verse 17, uh, Haggai says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, and yet you did not turn to me. And this is referencing back to Deuteronomy 28 when God outlined for his people curses that he would bring upon them if they did not remain faithful to him. But now here comes the hope part in verses 18 through 19. 
God says that because they have now started to place stone on top of stone, because they, have, because they have heeded his word, because they have begun to work on the temple again, he is choosing to bless them again with his presence. Uh, so going forward, the people of Israel would be able to look back at this day as a foundation day of sorts where the blessing of God returned to his people. And while this promise of renewed blessing would have been great news, it is great news uh, in Haggai's day, there was a significant question that the people must have been wrestling with. Uh, once they finish this temple, what are the odds that they actually remain faithful to God uh, for all eternity? Well, we know the answer. It's not good. The odds are not good that they will remain faithful to God. Um, and this is why next we are going to see that God um, really saves, he doubles down on his hope for us in our failure. Uh, we're going to turn to verses 21 through 23. Speak to Zerubbabel governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So I want to focus on a few things uh, as we begin to close. Uh, first, God is giving his people here in this final section extreme hope by making it clear yet again that it is going to be through his strength and his action that the temple will be rebuilt and filled with glory. Look at the phrases that are used. God says, I am about to shake the heavens. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms. I will take you, O Zerubbabel. I have chosen you. He's again reminding Israel of his past actions with references to his defeat of prominent enemies from their past. And the point really here, I think, is God is graciously, again, he's graciously giving his people the task of working on his house, but it will be through his power that his purposes are going to be accomplished. No amount of weakness, fear, or failure on the part of his people are going to get in the way of God's sovereign will. And second, his choosing of Zerubbabel to be like a signet ring is very significant, both for the people of Israel uh, and for us today. Uh, Zerubbabel happened to be a descendant of King David. Uh, so this is God renewing his promise to his people to bring about eternal salvation through the line of David. And as we know from Matthew chapter 1, we can read it there, Zerubbabel's name is in the genealogy of Jesus. So God is really foreshadowing here what he is going to do through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is going to shake the nations. He is going to overthrow the powers of this world, and he is going to bring about the renewal of creation, and he is going to reign as our eternal king. So church, our hope today is in Jesus. Because of his work on the cross where he took the punishment for our sins, we are made right with God. And finally, I want to touch on something really fast. Uh, we've implied multiple times today and last week that God does not need a temple. Uh, he does not need anything from us. Nothing that we can build for him is anything that he needs. His glory fills the heavens and the earth. But we here today, we need the body of Christ and the work that we do to build one another up in praying for one another and serving one another in proclaiming the fame of Jesus, both in our local community and for some of us to the ends of the earth, that, is, that work is for us and to change our hearts. And also, church, we need to be ready. The enemy is going to try to use our weakness, our failure, our fear, and other aspects of our brokenness to pull us back into those misplaced priorities. 
And so now, as we're tempted to despair because of our weakness, we can instead have hope in Jesus. Just like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, we can take comfort in knowing that his power is made perfect in weakness. And when we're afraid of what others are going to say or what others may think of us when they discover how broken we really are, we can have hope in Jesus. As it says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. And when we fail, when we fall short, we can rest in the hope that we have in Jesus. Because unlike the holy meat in the Old Testament temple, when Jesus touches something, it becomes clean. He doesn't become unclean. You become clean. And so when God looks at you and I, he no longer sees a messy failure. He sees the blood of Jesus. And just as the people of Israel could look back at the foundation of the temple, we can look back to the cross. Uh, for there where our sins were paid for, our foundation as a people was laid in Jesus Christ. And as it says in Ephesians 2, uh, he is himself our cornerstone. Uh, so church, as we labor on in service to Christ to build up his body, we can know that our foundation is secure despite our weakness, despite our fear, and despite our failure. Let me pray that that would be so for us today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for who you are. Uh, thank you that you have seen fit to reveal yourself to broken people. Uh, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Uh, I pray that as we go out from here, that our hope would stir up courage in our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do the work of conviction where it is necessary. I pray um, that we would each consider our ways and be honest with ourselves about where we are holding back and where we are struggling, where we want to be self-justified. God, I pray that we would trust in your faithfulness. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.